Does this remind you of anything? Quote, down here, the only thing that really lives is the machine. We created the machine to do our will, but we cannot make it do our will now. It has robbed us of the sense of space and of the sense of touch. It has blurred every human relation and narrowed down love to a carnal act. It has paralyzed our bodies and our wills, and now it compels us to worship it. The machine develops, but not on our lines. The machine proceeds, but not to our goal. We only exist as the blood corpuscles that course through its arteries, and if it could work without us, it would let us die. Oh, I have no remedy, or at least only one, to tell men again and again that I have seen the hills of Wessex as Alfred saw them when he overthrew the Danes. Zoom calls, maybe? I'm Roger and this is Bookshook and in this episode I discuss the second half of October's book The Machine Stops by E.M. Forster published in 1928. So each month I take a book I've never read, split it in two and discuss each half on the second and last Fridays of the month. I'll do a first impression summary alongside my thoughts and reactions and then raise any interesting ideas so far in the novel. Be aware, they may be spoilers. I'd love to share your thoughts and ideas of future episodes, so please leave a comment or start a conversation below. Or if you're listening to the episode, send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. Welcome to Bookshook. So, this episode is all about the second half of The Machine Stops from part two, The Mending Apparatus. There are no swear words in the podcast and there is no bad language either in the podcast. There is a mention of death in the novel. Please check the content of the novel before continuing. So a quick recap of the last podcast. Vashti lives on one side of the world, Kuno, her son, on the other. They're controlled by machines and they're forced to live underground. Kuno calls up his mum to tell her she must visit him because he knows about this other world on top of the surface of the world where the machine is not quite as powerful and it's possible to see the stars in reality. But this worries his mother a lot and she worries that he's going to get killed because of it. Anyway, continuing the story, Kuno tells his mother that he has been threatened with, quote, homelessness by the machine. And we get an answer to that question, what is homelessness? Now, homelessness means death. Quote, the victim is exposed to the air which killed him. He explains to his mother that he had been outside by finding a way out on his own without a respirator and has survived. She explains that this is wrong and he rails at her saying, quote, You think it irreligious of me to have found out a way of my own. It was just what the committee thought when they threatened me with homelessness. At this she grew angry. I worship nothing, she cried. I am most advanced. I don't think you irreligious, for there is no such thing as religion left. All the fear and the superstition that existed once have been destroyed by the machine. She continues and says, quote, The book says that it is impossible to escape to the surface. Now, it's important to realise that the book is a almost semi-religious tome produced by the machine that explains that it is impossible to escape to the surface. Kuno quietly says, quote, the book is wrong for I have been out on my feet. He explains that the concepts of near and far are actually measurable by the distance he can walk and quotes the Greek philosopher Pythagoras, quote, man is the measure. 
the usual interpretation being that the individual human rather than a god or an unchanging moral law is the ultimate source of value here it is certainly not the machine he says quote man is the measure that was my first lesson man's feet are the measure for distance his hands are the measure for ownership his body is the measure for all that is lovable and desirable and strong now vashi's world is really being turned upside down we hear this account of how the strong are euthanized by the machine. Quote, by these days, it was a demerit to be muscular. Each infant was examined at birth and all who promised undue strength were destroyed. Humanitarians may protest, but it would have been no true kindness to let an athlete live. He would never have been happy in that state of life to which the machine had called him. He would have yearned for trees to climb, rivers to bathe in, meadows and hills against which he might measure his body. Man must adapt to his surroundings must he not how awful and grim that is the fear of ai rising up against humanity now just recently in the news a journalist asked an ai whether they would take over humanity and the response was negative and the assembled journalists all laughed even so kuno manages to find a way out of his underground enclosure which incidentally looks exactly like his mother's he finds a ventilation shaft to escape since he wants to be a father, but the machine won't let him. His plea, quote, was rejected by the committee. He was not a type the machine desired to hand on. He thinks, quote, you will do it yet, you are coming. And for the first time in the novel, Vashti seems to be moved by these words. He builds up his muscles in training for day after day in preparation for the escape. As he explores these ventilation shafts, he feels comforted by the dead, quote, how can I possibly explain this? It was naked. Humanity seemed naked, and all these tubes and buttons and machineries neither came into the world with us, nor will they follow us out, nor do they matter supremely while we are here. Just how I feel when our internet goes down. Now he finds an airlock, which he has to jump to and risk death to grab hold of. And as he is telling this story, his mother is weeping, since she knows the machine won't stand for it, and will soon take his life. Quote, she was ashamed at having borne such a son, she who had always been so respectable and so full of ideas. Was he really the little boy to whom she taught the use of his stops and buttons, and to whom she had given his first lessons in the book? Now the book, remember, is that Bible, almost that tome which says how to live by the machine. Now Kuna hears absolute silence in the shaft and considers that his life thus far has had this constant background noise. He exclaims, quote, The machine hums. Did you know that? It hums. Its hum penetrates our blood and may even guide our thoughts. Who knows? I was getting beyond its power. Then I thought, this silence means that I'm doing wrong. And then we have a huge sacrifice by Kuno. Quote, I had reached one of those pneumatic stoppers that defend us from the outer air. You may have noticed them on the airship. Pitch dark, my feet on the rungs of an invisible ladder, my hands cut. I cannot explain how I lived through this part, but the voices still comforted me, and I felt for fastenings. The stopper, I suppose, was about eight feet across. I passed my hand over it as far as I could reach. It was perfectly smooth. I felt it almost to the centre. Not quite to the centre, for my arm was too short. Then the voice said, jump, it is worth it. There may be a handle in the centre and you may catch hold of it and so come to us your own way. And if there is no handle so that you may fall and dash to pieces, it is still worth it. You will still come to us your own way. 
Now, he grabs hold of the airlock and it opens, revealing powerful sunlight and shock horror. And contrary to the warnings of his mother, who said the air would kill him without a ventilator, he survives without the ventilator. They've all been fed an idea about the surface of the earth and its dangers by the machine. It really reminds me of a famous sci-fi film in the early 2000s. I won't name it in case you haven't seen it, but if you have, you'll know what I'm talking about. Quote, I cannot describe it. I was lying with my face to the sunshine. Blood poured from my nose and ears and I heard a tremendous roaring. The stopper, with me clinging to it, had simply been blown out of the earth and the air that we make down here was escaping through the vent into the air above. It burst up like a fountain. Kuno's appearance at this airlock reminds me of the biblical glory of God pouring down on him as if he has entered some kind of heaven. All the trappings of humanity, or in this case, the machine have been stripped away, including his breathing ventilator, and he's physically blown out of the earth, such as the power of his understanding. He believes he's in Wessex, according to his geographical lessons by the machine. Quote, there was I with a pneumatic stopper by my side and a respirator bobbing over my head, imprisoned, all three of us in a grass grown hollow that was edged with fern. Well, Vashti, in the first podcast, said that the Earth's surface is just dust and mud, so she was being fed a big lie by this machine. Kina continues, quote, We created the machine to do our will, but we cannot make it to do our will now. It has robbed us of the sense of space and of the sense of touch. It has blurred every human relation and narrowed down love to a carnal act. It has paralysed our bodies and our wills and now it compels us to worship it. The machine develops but not on our lines. The machine proceeds but not to our goal. We only exist as the blood corpuscles that course through its arteries and if it could work without us, it would let us die. Oh, I have no remedy, or at least only one, to tell men again and again that I have seen the hills of Wessex as Alfred saw them when he overthrew the Danes. Now this hatred for the machine is mixed with some real love of country, perhaps his view of Wessex and its importance in the world as a nationalistic feel. What do you think? There's definitely a feeling and a want to return to this kind of imagined England of the past in the text. Now at the time of writing, England was certainly feeling a wane in its worldwide domination and the gradual wane in its empire which stretched across the globe. It was increasingly challenged by many other industrialising nations. Perhaps this nostalgia is arising from this feeling of loss. So Kuno continues his narrative. The air in this book seems to operate a bit like water and pools around him as it gushes out the tunnel opening. Kuno is marvelling at beautiful Wessex. Quote, the sun set and the belly of mist lay between Mr. Hill, my hill and other hills, and that was the colour of pearl. But Kuno quickly realises that the, quote, mending apparatus has stopped the rush of air out of the hole in the tunnel where he appeared on the Earth's surface and is after him. Horrible white worms appear out of the hole and attached to him and drag him back down into the depths of the Earth. Quote, the whole dell was full of the things. They were searching it in all directions. They were denuding it, and the white snouts of others peeped out of the hole, ready if needed. Everything that could be moved they brought. Brushwood, bundles of fern, everything, and down we all went, intertwined into hell. The last thing that I saw, ere the stopper closed after us, were certain stars, and I felt that a man of my sort lived in the sky." There's that constellation again that we heard about in the first part of the novel, representing the freedom of man. And then he descends into 
almost like the nine layers of Dante's hell, he disappears down the tunnel. Vashti is outraged and responds with, quote, it will end in homelessness. The machine has been merciful. And Kuno says, quote, I prefer the mercy of God. Now Vashti realises he means God's mercy in letting him survive outside. And she tells him that many have died after the great rebellion and their bones are scattered around, quote, the surface of the earth that supports life no longer. But Kuno does say he was rescued. Quote, because I've seen her in the twilight, because she came to my help when I called, because she too was entangled by the worms, and luckier than I, was killed by one of them piercing her throat. So other people live out there, they survive in these inhospitable climbs. A bit like the Fremen in Dune, if you've ever read that fantastic novel. Now, cliffhanger, who is this woman who rescued Kuno? Will we ever find out? Then we move into part three and the years after Kuno's adventure out on the Earth's surface. There's two important changes that are made by the machine. One is the abolishment of respirators and two is the re-establishment of religion. With regard to the first, it is agreed on by the intelligentsia, like Vashti, that experience of the surface of the Earth is not really necessary anymore. Quote, those who still want to know what the Earth was like had after all only to listen to some gramophone or to look into some cinematophote. Beware of first-hand ideas, exclaimed one of the most advanced of the lecturers. First-hand ideas do not really exist. They are but the physical impressions produced by love and fear. And on this gross foundation, who could erect a philosophy? Let your ideas be second-hand, and if possible, tenth-hand, for then they will be far removed from that disturbing element, direct observation. More on that later. Now, the lecturer continues to argue that the French Revolution can be better understood by passing through different interpretations, all counteracting one another. In this way, quote, there will come a generation that has gone beyond facts, beyond impressions, a generation absolutely colourless, a generation seraphically free from taint of personality, to quote a popular poem at the time. Again, more on that later. There's tremendous applause that greeted the lecture which, quote, did voice a feeling already latent in the minds of men, a feeling that terrestrial facts must be ignored and that the abolition of respirators was a positive gain. It really reminds me of George Orwell's 1984, where the truth of facts is changed in order to meet the goals of the controlling government. Forster even states that the machine, quote, will see the French Revolution not as it happened, nor as they, the people, the humans would have liked it to happen, but as it would have happened had it taken place in the days of the machine. How chilling is that? I wonder if Orwell read this novel. And then in terms of the second point, the reestablishment of religion, this is an insidious religion based on a love of the machine. People, quote, describe the strange feeling of peace that came over them when they handled the book of the machine, the pleasure that it was to repeat certain numerals out of it, however little meaning those numerals convey to the outward ear, the ecstasy of touching a button, however unimportant, or of ringing an electric bell, however superfluously. The machine, they exclaimed, feeds us and clothes us and houses us. Through it, we speak to one another. Through it, we see one another. In it, we have our being. Oh my word, they are completely taken over by a love of this technology. It reminds me of the love we have of our phones, or of checking them constantly. And this book is talking about it, what, 100 years ago almost? It's very now. Now, 
Vashti continues to lecture and at one point asks for euthanasia after a friend is granted it. That's with a capital E. But she is denied it by the machine because, quote, the death rate was not permitted to exceed the birth rate. Kuno is transferred to a home close to Vashti's after his transgression outside. He calls her over the blue plate, think our modern day Zoom call, and tells her, quote, the machine is stopping. Now, I like the phrase stopping. It's not crashing or ending. I guess there's no word for crashing computers in the 1920s. Words associated with advanced technology haven't been invented yet. Just as a gramophone stops, so the machine will stop. The verb stop does give the impression that it might be started up again. Crash has maybe got more of a finality about it, even though maybe we can reboot our computers these days. Anyway, talking of gramophones, Vashi does make a complaint to the, quote, committee of the mending apparatus that, quote, the music was out of repair and, quote, needed mending. She complains of a, quote, curious gasping size that disfigure the symphonies of the Brisbane school. They sound like someone in pain. Now, the complaints are ignored and her complaints, alongside her friend's complaints, are soon forgotten. The mending apparatus is not fixed. It seems like someone is breaking the machine. Now listen to this, quote, Euthanasia too was out of order and pain had reappeared among men. Now pain is usually a negative thing, but not here. It is contrasted and given a positive twist in relation to dulling euthanasia administered by the machine. And then Vashti hears silence for the first time, quote, she broke down, for with the cessation of activity came an unexpected terror, a silence. She had never known silence, and the coming of it nearly killed her. It did kill many thousands of people outright. Ever since her birth, she had been surrounded by the steady hum. It was to the ear what artificial air was to the lungs. An agonising pain shot across her head. Now, I won't spoil the ending, but it's enough to say that she does finally reunite physically with her son, Kuno. She's not separated from him by the machine. I'm not going to explain how the novel ends, but it does soon end there. It's an extraordinary and powerful novel. I can't quite fathom. I've read a 56-page novel. It feels like a 500-page novel. There's such a wealth of rich ideas that are so resonant today. We never really find out who he was rescued by, or maybe there's something in the text I've missed. Do let me know if I have. Now, there was such an interesting idea in the novel of propaganda. When Kuno asks her to visit him, Vashti says, quote, I dislike seeing the horrible brown earth and the sea and the stars when it is dark. She's so used to the propaganda the machine has been spouting about how awful the real earth is. And I'm sure that writing in 1928, Forster would have been used to the type of propaganda trying to influence the thoughts of a large group of people. It was rife in World War I. Now Vashti tells her son that, quote, the surface of the earth is dust, no life remains on it, and you would need a respirator, or the cold of the outer air would kill you. One does immediately in the outer air. How does she know this? This is blatantly untrue, because Kuno appears on the earth's surface, quote, in a grass-grown hollow that was edged with fern. Now, to be fair, didn't last very long. The air that was around him was just really a bubble. So maybe if he'd stayed out a bit longer, it's possible that he may have died. But he certainly could survive for a good few minutes out on the surface of the earth. It's interesting, this idea of simulacrums. 
or objects that act and give the sense of something being real. Technical objects and machines like the fake reality of the gramophone, which is so important to Vashti. Now, during the early 1900s, the idea that something that is only traditionally able to be live, like music, is suddenly reproducible and mechanised, like the gramophone. Quote, those who still wanted to know what the earth was like had, after all, only to listen to some gramophone or to look into some cinematophote, which I guess is like a cinema screen, but very small, like, like a laptop or something. Now, in this world, artificial reality reigns supreme. And it's beginning to do so now, I would say. We've got an interesting idea of empiricism, which is kind of, that leads on to this idea, really, the neg or the negation, perhaps, of an empiricist thought, using observation and human rationality to understand the world. Remember, the book says, quote, Beware of first-hand ideas, exclaimed one of them. Remember, sometimes the people very influenced by the book of the machine say things like this, quote, Beware of first-hand ideas, exclaimed one of the most advanced of them. First-hand ideas do not really exist. They are but the physical impressions produced by love and fear. And on this gross foundation, who could erect a philosophy? Let your ideas be second-hand, and if possible, tenth-hand, for then they will be far removed from that disturbing element, direct observation. Or is this an argument for dispassionate, logic-based scientific reasoning removed from any human bias, or in this case, human first-hand experience? Quote, there will come a generation that has gone beyond facts, beyond impressions, a generation absolutely colourless, a generation seraphically free from taint of personality. Now, that's a George Meredith quote from The Lark Ascending. Of The Lark, he compares it to humans. Here's a quote from the poem. Our passion, quote, our passion, i.e. human passion, is too full in flood. We want the key of his wild note, The Lark's wild note, of truthful in a tuneful throat, the song seraphically free of taint of personality, so pure that it salutes the sons, the voice of one for millions, in whom the millions rejoice for giving their one spirit voice. Now, national ad, national identity is very important. When Kuno hugs Vashti at the end of the novel, he states that, quote, we have come back to our own. We die, but we have recaptured life as it was in Wessex when Alfred overthrew the Danes. We know what they know outside. They know outside. They who dwelt in the cloud that is the colour of pearl. There's definitely a harking back to a lost past. A talk of Wessex has all those associations with Thomas Hardy and bucolic England before industrialization and obviously Alfred overthrowing the Dane is harking to a national identity that can fight for itself and liberate itself from foreign aggressors. Just think 1920s England and you'll understand that there was likely a keen sense of a strong national identity after the horrors of the First World War. Now overall thoughts, I think it was a fabulous read is unlike any force I've read before. It really makes me think about the kind of world we're creating for ourselves with digital tech, AI and manipulative social media. We just need to make sure we don't lose our humanity, guys. So just a few ideas that resonated with me. I'd love to hear the thoughts that resonated with you. So please let me know. Send an email or write your thoughts below. Just a quick bit about the author E.M. Forster, Edward Morgan Forster. He was born 1st of January 1879 to 7th of June 
1970. He was an English author best known for his novels. This is from Wikipedia. Particularly A Room with a View, 1908, and Howard's End, 1910, and A Passage to India, 1924. I've read all three. They're fantastic. They're nothing like this novel. He also wrote numerous short stories, essays, speeches, and broadcasts, as well as a limited number of biographies and some pageant plays. He also co-authored the opera Billy Budd. Today, he is considered one of the most successful of the Edwardian-era English novelists. After attending Tunbridge School, he studied history and classics at King's College, Cambridge, where he met fellow future writers such as Lytton Strachey and Leonard Wolfe. He then travelled throughout Europe before publishing his first novel, Where Angels Fear to Tread, in 1905. Many of his novels examined class difference and hypocrisy. He was nominated for the Nobel Prize in Literature in 20 separate years. Maybe we get that feeling of classism when he's talking about Wessex and an old national identity. Anyway, I very much enjoyed it. Thank you very much, E.M. Forster. I'd like to talk a little bit now about November's book, The Death of Ivan Ilyich by Leo Tolstoy, the Russian. 106 pages, again quite short, published in 1886. If you're reading alongside, I'll be reading up to page 61, chapter 6. Now, I chose this novel purely because of an inspiration of reading this short novel. I looked up a list of great short novels and this definitely came up. Tolstoy, what do I know of him? Well, he's a great Russian writer. I've read War and Peace and Anna Karenina, and they were amazing reads, so let's give this one a whirl too. Tolstoy, great 19th century writer, born in 1828. Anyway, let's read the opening few pages of The Death of Ivan Ilyich. In the large court building during an adjournment of the Milvinsky trial, the members of the bench and the public prosecutor had come together in the office of Ivan Yegorovich Shebik and the conversation touched on the celebrated Krasovsky case. Fyodor Vasilievich argued vehemently that it was beyond their jurisdiction. Ivan Yegorovich had his own view and was sticking to it, while Pyotr Ivanovich, who had kept out of the discussion at the outset and was still not contributing, was perusing a copy of the Gazette, which had just been delivered. Gentlemen, he said, Ivan Ilyich is dead. Is he really? Here you are, read it yourself, he said to Fyodor Vasilievich, handing him the paper, fresh off the press and still smelling. There was an announcement within a black border. It is with profound sorrow that Praskovia Fyodorovna Golovina informs family and friends that her beloved husband, Ivan Ilyich Golovin, member of the Court of Justice, passed away on the 4th of February this year, 1882. The funeral will take place on Friday at 1pm. Ivan Ilyich had been a colleague of the gentlemen assembled there and they had all liked him. He had been ill for several weeks, and the word was that his illness was incurable. His post had been kept open for him, but there was an understanding that in the event of his death, Alexev would step into his place, and Alexev's place would be taken by either Vinikov or Stabel. So the first thought that occurred to each of the assembled gentlemen on hearing the news of his death was how this death might affect his own prospects, and those of their acquaintances for transfer or promotion. I'm sure to get Stabel's job now, or Vinikov's, thought Fyodor Vasilievich. They promised me ages ago, and a promotion like that would give me another 800 rubles a year plus expenses. 
I must apply to have my brother-in-law transferred from Kaluga, thought Pyotr Ivanovich. My wife will be delighted. She won't be able to tell me I'll, I never do anything for her people. I had a feeling he wasn't going to get better, said Pyotr Ivanovich. It's sad. Okay, so there's a lot of, <laughs> a lot of uh, Russian names that I'm trying to get my head round. Obviously, the death of Ivan Ilyich is going to affect quite a lot of people and we will see how his death affects these people in different ways they've all got their claims haven't they i'm going to look forward to that thank you very much leo tolstoy and thank you for listening if you have any questions or comments i'd love to hear them so leave a comment below or if you're listening to the episode send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com if you want to recommend a future book to read together let me know and if you enjoyed this please give it a thumbs up or leave a comment or subscribe on your episode app. Thank you very much. Now, I look forward to discussing the first half of The Death of Ivan Ilyich by Leo Tolstoy. That's 106 pages, not very long. At the next episode of Bookshook on the second Friday of November. That's the 24th. See you then. Mm-hmm.